0: The Daily Tap is live for Monday. We're going to go over winners and losers from Game 1 of the Bucks-Bulls. We'll talk a lot about Game 1 here, get into it, talk about why Game 1's are always a struggle. We have no idea. Um, And then we'll go into the Brewers, three things we liked, three things we didn't like. From the weekend, a 500 weekend for the Brewers, which is okay. And we'll talk a little bit about the receiver market and why more news has started with the OTAs kicking off in the NFL. And that'll be a show. Um, No trucks Corner today. Um, We'll just have those three topics and then we'll uh, back tomorrow with another Daily Tap. Before we get started, though, just a reminder, Tabbing the Keg on Twitter, Tabbing the Keg Sports on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok. Make sure you're following along. We appreciate that. If you are new listeners from whether it be Murph's friends or Shannon's friends or somewhere else, you were recommended the podcast over Easter weekend. I hope you're subscribed. If you're not, um, you can definitely do that on Apple, Spotify. Really, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, And if you are subscribed, make sure you're leaving a rating. Make sure you're leaving a review. I would really appreciate that. Um, The more we get, the more visibility uh, this show gets for everyone else. So I would hope you guys do that if you're fans of the show. All right, let's dive in. Loggie Bucks and the Chicago Bulls played a rock fight on Sunday night. Uh, It's actually really similar to what the Bucks and Bulls played in the first game they faced off this season, uh, it was in January. It was the famous uh, Grayson Allen play, but that game was 94 to 90. This one, 93 to 86. So, hope you had the under uh, in this one. But yeah, it was an absolute battle. It was a complete extraction to get points in this game. Whether it was Chicago, whether it was Milwaukee, Bucks had 20 turnovers. The Bucks couldn't do anything from the free throw line. Nobody showed up. Besides Giannis Kumbo in this game, Brook Lopez did kind of at the end. But the fact is, is that the Bucs are going to need a lot more to be successful in the playoffs. But it seems like Game 1s are always sort of their bugaboo. And I kind of wonder why. Like, I kind of wonder if this is a philosophy for Mike or We've talked about Game 1 struggles in the past. We've definitely done podcasts about it. We looked at, like, Greg Popovich in game ones and Greg Popovich had none of these like issues in game one. Every now and again you would see a, a Spurs loss in game one and then they would turn it on winning five or win in six and they were pretty much in control the rest of the way. But it wasn't something that I guess you saw regularly. I'll be curious to see how Minnesota does against or I'm sorry, Memphis, pardon me. I'll be interested to see how Memphis does against Minnesota because Taylor Jenkins, a Bud disciple, Also lost his first game of the playoffs with an awesome performance by Anthony Edwards. Minnesota was ready for the moment. Um, So I'm very curious to see how Memphis responds because that is very much out of the bud playbook to get your asses kicked in game one. And if Chicago had a, a semblance of an offense... We're talking about the Bucs being down 0-1 and probably the Bulls being one of the bigger stories of the weekend. Because everybody would be like, oh my God, maybe we were wrong about this Bulls team. Maybe the Bucs aren't going to walk through. But yeah, it was a, a Bucks team that did not necessarily put down the gas pedal after that first quarter. Uh, that, first, that second quarter got bad. Also, I think the refs... Did a lot to sort of tighten that game up. Um, I'm not one to blame the refs, but the refs were clearly having a favorable whistle for Chicago. They wanted to keep this game tight. They did their job. Um, Tony Brothers and the other guys understood the assignment in the second quarter because all of a sudden that game started to tighten up. And the refs were inconsistent from there. Um, they really weren't great. But again, you're not going to blame the refs if you won You're not, or lost. And you're not going to necessarily say like the refs had something to do with you winning either. You're never going to admit that, right? But yes, Game 1s have been an absolute struggle for the Milwaukee Bucks. Um, it necessarily seemed like it's getting better. I hope they figure it out. But it's clear that they don't value Game 1s maybe as much as other teams do. Like I feel like... For if you had, how important was Game One to a variety of teams? The Bucks are probably last in that importance ranking. If you think about it, Like I think for Miami it was weirdly important because the Hawks had some momentum coming into that series, and the Heat just blow them out. Um, they were they absolutely destroyed the Hawks. Uh, that game was not close from the absolute start. For the Sixers, Game One very important. Everybody picking Toronto to win that series. Everybody thinking that Toronto was going to give Philly a game. Philly blows them out. Philly looked probably the best they've looked in a long time, right? Like probably since the start of the Harden era, quote unquote. Uh, that's how good Philly looked in Game One. Game One very important to Boston and Brooklyn. I think that because a for Boston, they they want to try to have a short series. They don't want to go six or seven games with the Nets. The Nets know they they want to show up. They this is their time to show up. So all of those are important. Okay, so let's now go to the to the West. This is impromptu, but I I think it really kind of speaks to why they might not matter as much to the Bucs in terms of a Game 1. Golden State, first time they had Curry, Draymond, and Clayback. Of course, they're going to want to send a statement. Jokic, the MVP, um, they absolutely demolished that Denver team. Uh, Then you have... Utah and Dallas. Utah favored now because Luka's out. You want to take advantage of Luka Doncic not being out of the court. And and Utah was able to sort of extract that one out in the fourth quarter, even though that one was maybe not a rock fight, but it was a pebble fight. It was not, it was not as ugly as the as Bucks-Bulls, but it was pretty damn ugly in its own right. So you had that. Uh, Suns, Pelicans, yeah, maybe. I would, I could argue the Suns, it was maybe not that important for them. But similarly, with the momentum conversation with Atlanta, the Suns want to make sure that they're kind of you know, sending a message, shall we say. Um, and then lastly, the Memphis and Minnesota game. I actually think that was important for Memphis just because they have a bunch of young guys who haven't been here before. I think that matters, and they were a little shell-shocked. Um, so, we'll, but again, we'll see what happens. But I, I think to kind of round this out and then we'll get into the winners and losers. The game one is not that important to the Bucks, and they it mattered the least in all of the NBA, you know, the eight games that were, were had this weekend. It probably mattered to the Bucks the least because they've, A, been here before. I realize that some people will be like, well, Charlie, they need to win more than one before they start being like, games don't matter. Fine, whatever. But I'm just saying they know how to come back. They understand that adjustments will happen. Bud and his team now have two days to go into the lab, really three, because the game's not until 8.30 on Wednesday. They have three days to really look at. All the different things they can do. Look at the different matchups. Now you don't have George Hill because of an abdominal strain. So we saw a lot of Javon Carter minutes, which I thought were decent for Javon. He had a couple of nice plays in the game. But I think they're going to try to mess with lineups. They're going to see what they can do. I wonder if Serge Ibaka will play a little bit more, just given how well Brooke Lopez performed, how well. I mean, even Bobby had 10-10. and Uh, And he too, played well. So I think I'd be curious to see what adjustments are made. But I have... All the confidence in the world. This did not like deter how I feel about the Milwaukee Bucks for winners and losers for game number one. uh, You know, obviously the number one winner is Giannis Antetokounmpo. Giannis had a special game. He was plus nineteen in thirty four minutes. He had twenty seven points, sixteen rebounds. I wasn't that great from the free throw line, but he came out like an absolute. no you know supernova he was he was ready to play he was ready to go from the absolute start a uh, great game from Giannis uh definitely why he's the best player in the nba i mean that guy carried his team and you think about jokic and you think about how bad jokic was against the warriors and wasn't able to carry his team at all you Embiid definitely needed some help, but Embiid was not in the situation that Giannis was where none of his guys were scoring, Um, and Giannis put the guys on his back and won this basketball game for them, and I have no idea what Bud was doing, we can go into a loser here is Mike Boonholzer. Mike Boonholzer's strategy with Giannis made zero sense. I don't understand really what Bud was doing. Um, If you have five fouls with a guy and it's your best player, I think you can keep him out there. He has to know not to foul. I mean, maybe Boonholzer thought the refs were terrible and wanted to make sure if this game did go to overtime that he had Giannis, just given how bad they were. Um, but yeah, I, or how bad the other guys were. But yeah, it made no sense. Um, it was a, definitely a bad bud game. Um, I like Mike Budenholzer. I think Mike Boonholzer has made massive steps in the last few last few years but this was a bad bud game and whether that goes back to our game one not being that important or what but I just don't necessarily understand what bud was doing when it comes to Giannis's minutes um someone pointed out Giannis hasn't played 40 plus minutes since the clinch against the Phoenix Suns I'm not really that worried about that just because I, I think you want to keep him healthy, but I don't really understand why Giannis couldn't have played 38. Like I feel like you definitely should have had Giannis for 38 or 39, and maybe it was fouls because Middleton played 39, Holiday played 39, Lopez played 32. Um, obviously with the back stuff and having a lot of big men around to be able to play. I think that's you know, that that they basically have that available to them. So, yes. Definitely a winner for Giannis, a loser Mike Budenholzer for just the way he he sort of managed Giannis's minutes. Another winner is Brook Lopez. Uh, Brook had a great game. He was really good down the stretch. 18 points, five rebounds. Um, he also made three or four on the free throw line. Uh, Brook was great uh, in the late game. He also was really good defensively against Vucevic. I know Vucevic had he had a. Decent day, right? Twenty-four points, but he also shot the ball twenty-seven times. So you look at all the Bulls that had double figures; almost all of them were shooting a ton. Uh, DeRozan, Levine, all those, and Vucevic all were pretty damn bad, and the Bucks made it hard on them every time out. So I have to give to Brook Lopez as a winner. He was the only other guy than Giannis to really have a, a say in this one. Uh, he got going pretty quick and he he's a, he's going to be a factor in the series he's gonna, he, the bulls do not have the size to match up with Brook Lopez down low. That's why I wonder if Ibaka is going to get some run uh, for the next. They kept a tight rotation, but I do wonder, would you add Ibaka to the mix and try to, you know, kind of overpower the Bulls in, in game number two or in game number three when you have to deal with the fans of Chicago, where it's going to be loud, it's going to be rowdy. How can you do something a little bit different to sort of quell that noise? I think you could go really big and go with size lineups. I think that should be on the table for the Bucs. Because Lopez had had his way. I think Bobby, I don't necessarily put Bobby as a winner or a loser, but Bobby, I mean, he had 10 points, 12 rebounds. Like he was aggressive in there as well. So, and he had a really good defense at the end. So we'll give Bobby like a sort of winner, shall we say? But yeah, definitely uh, winners and losers. Another loser uh, to call out. The Bucks bench really Pat Connaughton and Grayson Allen specifically. Uh, Pat Connaughton, one of seven, one of six from three, was really rough. Uh, Grayson Allen. He, was, he just had two shots entirely in the game. He had three rebounds, but that was it for Grayson Allen. Um, just did not see much from the Bucks' bench besides Bobby Portis. Javon Carter really didn't play that well either. I know I mentioned he had a nice defensive moment, but they need more from that bench. They can't have just Bobby Portis being the only one. Um, that bench definitely needs to pick the other guys up, especially when Middleton and Holiday are struggling. Um, so that to me is a definite loser. A winner is the Bucks' defense. Uh, 86 points against any NBA team is no slouch, right? They played really, really good defense all game against Rosen, Levine. Uh, they made things difficult on Patrick Williams, who is you know kind of their next big thing. Um, he only shot the ball three times, kind of a little timid. Io DeSumo was not a non-factor. He only played nine minutes. He only shot the ball once. Uh, they, they just did a really good job on a lot of their different guys. I feel like Kobe White was the only dude who kind of had a good game in this one when you look at the Bulls offensively. Another loser is Alex Caruso, and it's kind of funny that like Grace Allen was painted as this villain. It kind of reminds me of this story in college, where I had a friend. Um, I, these are I will remain everybody nameless, but I had two roommates. Okay, both roommates were they got around. You know, they they would uh, they could they had their way with women. Um, they were pretty successful, and one was kind of known for it. Like one was definitely, definitely known known for it, and I, I was like, I, he, it was so funny because and, and and so he was definitely well well liked by the ladies, but known for being sort of a lothario, shall we say? Then the other guy was he might have even had more sex than my my other friend, but nobody knew about it. We called him the snake, like we he just would snake around, like he he would slither around. And no one would know about this. And he just would just be beating cheeks all across Eau Claire. So, t- taking this back to Caruso and Grayson Allen. C- Grayson Allen is known as this villain. Grayson Allen is known as this like bad guy. But are we sure it's not Alex Caruso? Like, Alex Caruso flops everywhere. Holy shit. That guy's on the ground more than a white guy in Hoosiers. Like... Unbelievable loser shit from him and the rest of the bulls. They were flopping everywhere. My guy Dan Motch was like, Someone's gonna get hurt. And I I agree, like the the refs have to say something to the bulls, right? They have to say, like, we're gonna start calling blocking. If you guys hit the floor this much and create scrums, because that's basically what's happening. You look at some of those lanes and they're creating these like rugby scrums. They're gonna be lucky that nobody that nobody would have like tore a tore an ACL or broke a foot or something. It's it's ugly, man. I just I think there is a real concern, and I think Caruso should be chastised for it. He's going to be a villain in this series. I don't think any of us are going to like Caruso by about game three. But man, oh man, like you got to do something about the fact the Bulls just hit the floor relentlessly, and it's not like they're diving after loose balls. It's just they're flopping any chance they can get, taking as many charges as possible. It's so dumb. It's such a basically pathetic way to play defense. Other winners and losers. Another loser is Greg, Gr- Grant Hill. Man, Grant Hill. I don't know what Grant Hill has against the Bucks. Like I, I don't mean to be like guys hate your team, but like everything that Grant Hill was saying was Pro Bowls. Like he's like, well, I don't know, that's following the honest. or like, oh, that was yeah, good call by the refs. Like I, I didn't see a ton of encouragement for the Bucks. I know what you guys are saying. Like that's such a meathead fan approach. Like everybody thinks you hate their team. But, like, Grant Hill just seemed ultra-critical of the Bucks, and then seemed very favorable to the Bulls. I don't, I don't know. I don't get it. I'm not a huge Grant Hill fan. I don't really understand why Grant Hill gets the platform that he does. Like, he's the top guy at CBS for college basketball, and he gets this. Like, it's just a lot of Grant Hill. And I think it's too much, Grant Hill. So I will chalk Grant Hill as a loser. Winner, I would say the Bucks crowd. I thought the crowd was pretty good tonight. Um, I know we had talked a lot last week about how there could be a lot of Bulls fans in attendance. I didn't hear a ton. Like I did not hear a boo for Grayson Allen. I did not hear excitement when DeRozan or Levine hit a shot or Vucevic. I thought it was a pretty good Bucks crowd. I'd be curious if someone was there what the percentage breakout was, if it was like 80-20 it was more like 90 10 or if it was like 70 30 um so if you did go to the game and want to reach out i would love to kind of get a calculation on that because that that was definitely a good thing as well as a look ahead to game two um i think really where it comes down to is you just need holiday and middleton to get going i I will preview game two as we get closer to it but you just need more from Holiday and Middleton. I know Holiday was good in the fourth quarter. He's been good in the fourth quarter all year. But you're going to need more from Drew Holiday. You're going to need Chris Middleton to be better with the ball. Middleton and Holiday had just all sorts of turnovers. Turnovers could have easily made the loser category with 21 total in the game. But yeah, Middleton. Wow, Middleton? Oh yeah, had 7 turnovers. I was like, yeah, 2? No. 7 turnovers for Middleton. 4 for Holiday. Yeah, 11 combined between those two guys is not going to win basketball games. So they need to be better with the ball. need be a little more careful uh, so hopefully you'll get a better game out of Middleton and Holiday and you get something more from the Bucks bench but I would imagine that the Bucks come out sort of firing and if you remember a lot of game twos the Bucks have been on their shit the Hawks they blew out the Hawks in game two they blew out the Miami Heat in game two they did get their asses kicked by Brooklyn in game two but that was on the road so who knows maybe a little different but yes I all in all I I do think the Bucks will be ready for this one. They seem to always get up for game twos. And I think a couple days off is really going to actually help. More so with Buno's. I'm not worried about the players. Like, they had to play Tuesday night, fine. But I think it gives Bud a, a long time to adjust. And I hope that we're not having Bud conversations after game two. All right, let's move on to the Milwaukee Brewers. They had a decent weekend. Uh, Brewers go 500. If you did a Milwaukee parlay today, uh, you would have won, uh, which is interesting because I I probably would not have recommended that. Uh, the St. Louis Cardinals are really 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 good against left-handers. I was worried for Aaron Ashby because of that. Uh, they had guys like Goldschmidt, they had guys like Arenado, uh, Albert Pujols, who did it all home run off Ashby. Like they have a bunch of guys that kill left-handed pitching. And Ashby made it out all right. Like he had the bases loaded, he got out of a jam in the first inning. Uh, he was struck out four. He did walk four, but and gave and had one bad pitch to Albert Pujols. But all in all, a pretty decent start for Aaron Ashby, and I think he'll continue to put pressure on guys like Eric Lauer, Adrian Hauser, who did pitch well this weekend. We'll talk about him in a second. Uh, but yeah, it was a decent weekend for the Brewers. Stay in 500. They're five and five on the year. Um, not exactly where you want to be after 10 games but it's still it's still fine like it's okay like being 500 is long season you want you don't want to lose you know series to the cardinals especially at home Uh, so to get the split is nice and now you play pittsburgh who you could try to hopefully take advantage of as the pirates are supposed to not be that good this year they've been decent to start the year we'll talk about that at the tail end of this but yeah let's go into three things we liked about the brewers this weekend and three things we didn't Number one for me is Trevor Gott. I know I talked a little bit about him on Friday's show, but Trevor Gott continued to be awesome. He pitched well on Saturday, um, inning in a third, and then on Sunday, he got the Brewers out of a jam when Devin Williams struggled, who we'll talk about a little bit in the don't-like section. But yeah, Trevor Gott's a dude, man. Like, he looks... Like the next Brewer find, right? The Brewers seem to always do this where they find somebody out of the scrap heap, they pull someone out and the guy's great. Like if you look at Gott's career numbers, they don't make sense, right? And then now the Brewers have seemingly fixed him in no short time. And Gotts seems like a very reliable guy that you can trust on. And I think that's really good for the seventh inning because you probably overworked Boxburger, And Boxburger being an older dude, I don't know if he can do that in back-to-back years. So if you can kind of use... Gott and Boxberger as interchangeable seven inning guys. I think that's going to be really helpful for the Brewers. And his stuff's good, man. He has a good slider. I really like what I saw out of Trevor Got, and I am. I said it on Twitter yesterday. I'm a Trevor Got got Officially, So uh, I think everyone should be a got guy. Uh, he's, he's really, really shown a lot for me in the first 10 games of the season. I really enjoyed Tyrone Taylor getting going um, on Sunday. He has that two-run double. That double is huge. Um, if, if Tyrone Taylor doesn't have that double on Sunday, the Brewers don't win the game. Um, so a massive hit from Taylor in terms of insurance runs. The Brewers need that. They also need sort of another guy other than Andrew McCutcheon to get going in the outfield. Um, it's there for the taking. I mean, Tyrone Taylor struggled too. Renzo Cain's been struggling. Hunter Renfro's been struggling. I think it's there for the taking if somebody wants it. And I'll be curious to see if you see more of Tyrone Taylor or more of McCutcheon in the outfield so you can play Rowdy Tellez and Keston Hira at the same time. Because I kind of think... That's the Brewers' best lineup right now is having Tyrone Taylor, maybe Tyrone Taylor, Andrew McCutcheon, Yelich, and then you know going with Telez and Hira. But you might have to put yourself in a situation where Tyrone Taylor, I, I really like him and I think he's a really good player, but you might have to use him as collateral to get like a, a solid third baseman because... I don't know. I don't know when Weicho is coming back. I thought Weicho should have been back by now. He's not. You have Jace Peterson there. He's struggling. I just wonder if Tyrone Taylor will be used for the Willie Adamas trade that the Brewers made last season. Like, to me, he feels like the perfect guy to kind of be able to do that and then add in maybe like a pitcher that is sort of, you know, half, half in, half out, quad a guy. I could definitely see that. Not that I'm advocating for Tyrone. I like Tyrone Taylor a lot. Like I said, I just I I I see kinda see the writing on the wall there. Last thing I liked was Adrian Hauser. Adrian Hauser continues to pitch well this season. Uh, you know he had a little bit of a walk issue against Baltimore. Still thought his stuff was good, uh, and it was good against the Cardinals. He's dominated the Cardinals last two years. I think that is something to definitely hang your hat on if you're a Brewers fan. And Hauser should have got the run support. It sucks that he's 0 too 2. It's why baseball wins are kind of funky. Because I would argue that that was a winning performance from Adrian Hauser. He just got no run support. So hopefully Adrian gets some help the next time out. But he. He's off to a good start this season. Definitely a lot to prove with it being a contract year for Hauser. So I'm not surprised that he's he's pitching well um, because he's doing doing good things. And I think Hauser should be commended for that and definitely like his stuff so far. I think he works well with Carantini too. I'm not saying he should be a personal catcher or anything like that, but definitely something to kind of keep your eye out for if you see more of the Carantini Hauser connection because obviously Carantini caught him well uh, as he was dominating out there. It just had one one bad inning in the fourth the fourth was just the inning where you know he got some guys on but other than that it wasn't wasn't too bad you can't expect you you basically have one run allowed in almost six innings and only allow four hits like that's pretty damn good you uh, your hauser so good stuff from him jay cousins a lot to work on there which we could we could mention as well in the things we don't like but devin williams is number one think right now mitch and i talked about this at the start of the season if you listen to like our preview i think we did like an importance ranking for the brewers uh so if you go back and listen to that we talk about how there's some pressure on devin williams right because devin williams punches the wall breaks his hand he misses the postseason a lot of people including myself called it a selfish move it was pretty childish and devin williams has gone out and really struggled so far this this season I think Devin Williams just needs more time. I'm not saying that he needs a Jeff Supan DL visit for those unfamiliar. Uh, Jeff Supan used to just Supan, not Supan, very Wisconsin to me. Uh, Jeff Supan used to pitch for the Brewers and there and he wasn't good. And he would just have these random DL stints and he would just go on the DL for 15 days and they'd be like, all right, we gotta get Jeff some rest. And it was basically because he sucked. It was like we're we're gonna make up a shoulder injury. Maybe you could do that with Devin Williams. Um, I just think Devin Williams just needs more, you know, a little bit less of a high leverage spot. He needs more of those low leverage spots. So I wouldn't be surprised if the Brewers go with Gott and Boxberger going forward in the eighth and then they use Williams more in a sixth or seventh inning situation just to get him right um, and get him a little less in that high leverage spot and see if he, you know, can work through it. I will also say the counter of that, while I do. I do understand using Got or using Boxberger more. Craig Council's been known to let his guys work through it. I mean, we've seen we've been through Josh Hader and his struggles in the past, and Councils basically said, "All right, you're going to figure this out. You're going to we're going to keep throwing you out there until you figure it out." And it has to get really bad before we make significant changes. So I don't know. We'll see if Council agrees and goes with Got or Boxberger. Or if Devin Williams, like I don't expect to see Devin Williams tonight, pitch 35 pitches um, against St. Louis, but yeah, he's just he's just missing his spots. I think he'll get there. Um, I'm not necessarily worried about Devin Williams yet, but it is an unfortunate start to the season for him. Other things I didn't like, you know, the no offense, man, was is just so frustrating. It feels like last year. It feels like nothing changes. It feels like every year the Brewers just seemingly. Can't produce any sort of runs. I I don't get it. I don't get why you know, they have a new hitting coach in Ozzie Timmons. Like I'm not I, I'm not really there yet on why the Brewers continue to struggle offensively. Um, I'm not advocating for Timmons to be fired or anything like that. But I'm I'm curious to see you know what his approach and how it changes because I'm not necessarily seeing it yet. Um, but maybe as the year goes on and you have more of a sample size, you're going to realize it's there. Um, So it was rough to go from getting basically shut out against St. Louis on Friday to then not being able to produce any runs against Steven Matz or even put any base runners on. Like the Brewers were pretty pathetic. I mean, they only had five base runners that entire game. Um, The Cardinals did not walk a single batter in nine, nine innings. Like I just feel like that's just a sign of a bad approach. Like that's just a bad book on mats on you know ryan helsley genesis cabrera did give up a home run to carantini but that was it so hopefully the brewers kind of work out their offensive struggles because uh, i don't really feel like going through another year of this i also don't feel like going through another year of christian yelich struggle yelich struck out four times on sat on friday he was really really bad against Miles Michalas and then on Sunday he didn't have a hit but he did walk a couple times and scored two runs his on base percentage is like 359 right now to his batting average which is 200 so there is signs of light that Yelich is being more patient at the plate and getting on and I think that's good because as we as they talk about a lot on the broadcast his base running is underrated uh, it's really good uh, so to have more Yelich on the base pads definitely helps the Brewers you know moving forward as for tonight uh, they get ready to take on the Pittsburgh Pirates Pirates are not the best team uh, Pirates have definitely struggled um, st- they're not really struggling to start the year uh, they're five and four so I have basically the same record as the Brewers Zach Thompson the righty goes for the Brewers against Eric Lauer uh, Zach Thompson has had a good start to the season he did hurt his shoulder in his last start but it took a drive off his shoulder seems to be all right um, so he'll be facing off against Eric Lauer tonight. So that that should be an interesting matchup. Um, obviously, you know, we don't want to recap every Brewer game. We do like a one and one thing we don't like, one thing we don't like. But so hopefully the Brewers can get off to the right start in the series and get, you know, a First game series win like they did against the Cardinals, and then build on that. It'd be nice to you know sweep the Pirates. I'm not asking for that, but you do have Burns and Woodruff going on the back end of this against JT Brewbaker, who's struggled to start the season. He's been really rough. And then they have Mitch Keller, another guy who's been struggling against Brandon Woodruff on Wednesday. Uh, a 420 uh, matinee. so I'm sure the the weed smoke will be pillowing Ampham uh, Am, Field, but probably not. And thank God we have a roof. Just a shout out there because it is gross outside. It snowed overnight. um, So it is definitely a good time to have a roof. I don't expect there to be a lot of people uh, in the seats on a Monday Pirates game. I think you could get into into the ballpark for probably less than $5 uh, to see the Brewers and Pirates this evening uh, with no Burns or Woodruff. Actually, I will say this it would be a good time to take advantage of going to see Corbin Burns just because it's a Tuesday night. It's cold. It's not. The warm-up happens this weekend. I would definitely do that if you haven't seen Corbin Burns pitch or you want to see Corbin Burns pitch. It's probably a good time to take advantage of that. All right, let's wrap up the show with the wide receiver market. This morning, we had Mr. Adam Schefter, you might have heard of him, uh, report that Debo Samuel, A.J. Brown, Terry McLaurin are not expected to participate in their team's on-field off-season programs because they want new contracts at a time this off-season where wide receiver deals have exploded per league sources. As a team leader, Terry McLaurin will still be reporting to the team's off-season program while his contract situation remains unsolved per a source. Tennessee's offseason program begins today. San Francisco begins Tuesday. But this is an issue that hangs over these teams' players, their teams, the draft. Teams will have options to extend these players' contracts or explore trades for them. So it's really interesting because I don't think I would put any of these guys in the category of Devontae Adams or Tyreek Hill. Take Tyreek Hill's offseason off field stuff aside, just take the player. I think Tyreek Hill deserved his contract and Devontae Adams deserved his contract. But the fact that these guys are like, all right, now you're paying me before my contract is up is really interesting. And it's really getting to a point where I wonder if the league is like, are we sure this is a good idea? Are we sure we're not heading into a path where everybody has contracts and basically it's like this player, it's a combination of player empowerment. So you have pro football vote tweet out, like pay these guys, like everybody has an infinite amount of money. But then at the same time, it's like, how do you kind of balance, you know, having large wide receiver, large quarterback salaries and large wide receiver salaries? We talk about the cap being fake all the time. It is true. I, I don't think the cap is real. What I say all the time to people when I talk about the salary cap in the NFL is that it's it's just a number, it's kind of a mirage, and it's all about how you can manipulate the cap. And the cap, it can be very much manipulated. Now, if the NFL and their collective bargain agreement, which probably would have a lockout and probably would not work out well, if the NFL was like, all right, we need to stop this manipulation and we developed sort of a hard cap, then you, know, you will not see the money as the same sort of, everything won't make sense. And I do wonder if guaranteed contracts become a real thing, which J.C. Treder, the players union head, wants to see. I do wonder if they say, all right, well, if we're going to guarantee contracts, we're going to have a hard cap. And then our cap is what it is. There's no maneuvering. There's no manipulating. We'll extend the cap because we're going to make more money in TV. But basically your guaranteed money is your guaranteed money. And we'll work on you know the other guys and figure out how this all works. I don't know it, how the guaranteed stuff can start. I think they'd really have to basically reinvent how the NFL does salaries. So all these guys being upset, I don't know if they were. I don't think any of these teams—San Francisco, Washington, or Tennessee—were expecting to pay these guys this year. I think they were like, "All right, we have one more year before we have to extend Debo, before we have to extend Terry McLaurin, because they don't have the these five-year because they're second-round guys. They're like, where where is my money? Like I I'm underpaid. I want to get paid, but I, I would say Debo is the only one that might be worth that. I think Terry McLaurin's had a really good career, underrated career. But I don't know if Washington is in a position to be like, yeah, we want to build around Terry McLaurin.
1: Because don't
0: they need to get that wide receiver figured out, or the quarterback figured out? which could be Carson Wentz. They brought in Carson Wentz. I guess if you think you want to build around Wentz and McLaurin, then you, you pay Terry McLaurin. If I'm the San Francisco 49ers, I'm like... I don't know. Can I figure? Can I find another Debo Samuel? Like, what if they draft Trevelyan Burks in the draft this year? What if they move up? They don't have a first-round pick. What if they move up into the second round and take Burks? Say Burks falls in the second round. Why isn't Burks any different than Debo? He's a bigger version of Debo, probably. Why? Why couldn't they do that, right? Um, And for Tennessee, they're drafting twenty-six. Like they're in perfect position. Why couldn't they basically draft? AJ Brown's replacement or move up to get like Drake London who is again a big body guy like AJ Brown why couldn't they move up to get like a Drake London I just think these receivers are overvaluing themselves and the receiver market is similar to like NBA in a way like to me the NBA contracts and the receivers kind of coincide because it's like They are the guys who I think read their headlines the most. They're they're kind of the most prima donna guys on the roster. They are talked about almost in the same realm as quarterbacks, and the value has gone up significantly. So they have to figure out, how do we match this? How do we change receiver contracts? Have they been changed for good? Or will we see sort of a leveling out where it's like, yeah, Devontae was the peak, and nobody's going higher than Devontae or Tyreek Hill. And you guys just aren't that good. You're not there yet. You're not in that top five conversation. Because I wouldn't put any of those guys as top five wide receivers. So I'm really fascinated to see how this works out. Now could the Packers swoop in on a guy like A.J. Brown or Terry McLaurin? Maybe. I would love Terry McLaurin. I think Terry McLaurin will be excellent for what the Green Bay Packers need. And if they decide to go with Terry McLaurin instead of drafting a receiver, I'm all in. I'm 100% in on that idea. If they were to say to Washington that, hey, we'll give you the 28th pick for Terry McLaurin, so then Washington could essentially draft Sam Howell or draft Matt Corral or draft even maybe Desmond Ritter, right? And have a quarterback of the future, kind of put pressure on Carson Lentz, but also, you know, to make sure that they have a backup plan. That is exactly what they could do with that 28th pick. Now, if Tennessee. I don't. I think AJ Brown will be a little tougher to get. Weirdly, I don't actually want AJ Brown. Uh, AJ Brown to me has had a lot of injury issues too. That's another thing. I don't understand why you'd want to pay AJ Brown with all the injury concerns that he has had. I'm not as high on AJ as I would be Terry McLaurin or Debo Samuel. But the Niners are not trading Debo Samuel to the to the Packers. Let's just let's not even explore that. If you are, just touch some grass. Figure it out like that. There is no way. There's no way that's happening. But yeah, I I think the Packers can put an interesting package together for Terry McLaurin. I think just Washington needs more draft picks. I think Washington definitely feels that they are a a team, you know, maybe a few more guys away from being actually something real. And I don't know, maybe Terry McLaurin isn't a first-round value guy, because if Devontae got first-round, I don't know if Terry McLaurin's worth a first-rounder. I don't think he is. If we're we're using the same theory of they're not as good as Tyreek and Devontae, then they're not worth first-round picks. They're probably worth second or third-rounders. So We'll see. We'll see what happens. I mean, again, you'd have to the, – the last thing I would say is you would have to basically understand if you're going to trade for this guy, all right, what's the contract look like, and are they ready to take it? And that's that's a challenge. That's a big challenge because it could be a rental. And if it is a rental, like if one team could do a rental receiver for a year and bring in a mercenary similarly to what uh, the Patriots did with Darrell De- Revis – it's the Green Bay Packers because who knows how long Aaron Rodgers stays here and you're just trying to win every year and then if next year Terry then goes to I don't know this new, let's just say the New Orleans Saints they don't have any money but that's a bad example but the first team he in, mind they go to the New Orleans Saints like alright whatever fuck it it's fine we won a Super Bowl he was our hired gun and we brought him in I'm fine with that we'll see we'll see what happens it should be a fascinating two week sprint to the NFL draft we're getting very close Speaking of which, we will have uh, the edge rusher segment that Murph and I did. Um, we actually might do the safeties. I Actually, I'm going to take that. Well, that was our last one, the way we did it. So we'll do the edge rusher on Wednesday – or on Tuesday – And then the safeties on Wednesday, unless Mitch wants to do uh, Tapping the Keg before game two, but I think he'd want to do it after game two. So I think Tapping the Keg will ride us out to the weekend, uh, and we'll talk about game two and game one, and we'll also get ready for three and four, whole thing. Like I said, two special recap podcasts on Saturday. We will do a game three reaction on Saturday, I won't do it Friday night, likely, because I'll be out getting drunk. Um, but now I have to figure that out because I'm going to go golfing on Sunday so, or Friday so, or Saturday. Jeez, can't give me a day straight. Uh, can you tell I, I had a lot of uh, Easter activity? I'm just wiped. I can't believe it's Monday. I need like an extra day. I need that Easter Monday that the Europeans get. All right, guys, take care of yourself. Have a good one. We'll be back tomorrow. See you. Bye.